You are listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Well, today's message is, is not going to be a message of the typical kind. As, as Josh and I talked about what I should talk to you about today, um, he recommended that I talk to you about this upcoming transition. As he has already told you, it's, it's not a sure thing. Um, and one, if there's anything I've learned over the years, that nothing's for sure until it's for sure. Um, and, and therefore, don't count your chickens before they're hatched, etc. cetera. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there's a, a strong possibility that this move is gonna happen and therefore we need to start preparing for it. We need to start engaging our minds and wills and, and get ready for what is likely to happen. So instead of explaining one por- portion of scripture and then applying it to our lives the way that we usually do, uh, what I'm going to do is, this is the way Josh uh, couched it as we talk together. He says, He'd like me to talk like a father uh, to his children. Um, And uh, if you don't mind, that's the way it's gonna be today. I'm gonna talk to you uh, like a father would talk to his children before embarking on a a life-changing journey to immigrate to another country where there's some big changes coming and, and, and you need to know some things. You need to prepare for some things. As you know, we've always been about the gospel in this church, and I hope that that never changes. And the gospel has much to say about transitions if we're willing to listen. Uh, And I'll touch on that in just a few moments. I don't see anybody who's visiting for the first time except you folk, and you're from Westside. Welcome, it's nice to have you. Um, But just to go over the over what's going on again so that we're all right there. Um, uh, Context matters. And as you know, Westside approached us, I can't even remember how long ago now, three months, May, wow. Uh, In May, um, they're a congregation about 15 minutes away uh, from us by by car. And they talked to us about the possibility of coming and and taking over their congregation. They're a, a shrinking congregation and they've, they've asked that, that we would consider that and, and uh, moving in to that location and that becoming our new church home. And so now we are on the verge of making this transition. And uh, they're a smallish congregation. We're a smallish congregation, though a little bigger than them. But we need to consider how we can take a mostly young, multicultural congregation like ourselves. I think we once, even though we're small, I think there's about 17 different nationalities represented in our church. How you can take a congregation like that and effectively join them together with a largely older, one culture congregation that's up at Westside. Multicultural, one culture, uh, mostly younger, mostly older. Both congregations are unified around the gospel, the importance of sound doctrine, which I love about them. 
there's been so many who've departed from sound doctrine. So I love the fact that even while they were shrinking, they weren't jettisoning sound doctrine. We're, we're united around the sovereignty of God in all things. They're reformed in, in, the, in the essential elements of reformed theology like we are. And these are huge categories of immense importance that provide a real solid base for future growth together. But the history and the culture and the application of gospel truth is quite different in these two congregations and is inevitably going to present some challenges as we try to walk together in love. The scriptures talk a lot about the importance of unity and often brings up the subject of uniting different kinds of people together under the banner of God's grace and under Christ. Uh, You don't have to read very far in the New Testament before you uh, read about the difference between the Jews who had a very uh, Hebrew biblical culture and the Gentiles who came from complete worldliness and paganism. Two completely different worldviews, people coming to faith in Christ and trying to unite that in a church was no small task. A lot of scripture is devoted to how to make that work practically. So today, I want to briefly share a key gospel principle that I believe needs to govern our thinking as we seek to unify these two congregations into one. And then following that, after talking about this key gospel principle, I would like to recommend three gospel applications that we can put into practice as we seek to foster unity and growth as we walk through this transition. So let's begin. If you could open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter two, well-known text of scripture. Philippians chapter two. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And I'd like to read from verse three to verse eight. Philippians chapter two, from verses three to verse eight. And follow along closely in your Bibles. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, as I've already stated, this is not going to be an exposition of scripture the way we usually do on Sundays. But let me point out a a couple of important observations as we think about this well-known text of scripture. I think verse three and four gives the clearest and I would say most succinct definition of humility found anywhere in the Bible. 
So we are talking about the attitude of humility. And then if you look back to verse two, you'll notice that the topic that's being discussed is unity. Complete my joy, the apostle Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's a a multifaceted description of unity. So here is our, my first observation, and it's simply this. The key to unity, my friends, uh, with people of differing perspectives and different backgrounds and different histories is humility in those people. No humility, no unity. Okay, this, this truth applies not just to churches, it applies to marriages, It applies to any group of Christians together that are different. The the key to unity is humility. Okay, I would say, if I go just for a moment away from my notes, there's actually two things that are the key to unity. One is doctrinal. uh, You have to be doctrinally on the same page on the important stuff. Okay, but a lot of uh, church groups think that if they're just doctrinally correct, they're gonna have unity and that is completely false. It isn't enough to be doctrinally on the same page. You also have to have humility. There's a a doctrinal component to unity and there's a relational component. So that's the first observation from the text, okay? So the question then is, how do we learn to treat others as more significant than ourselves? How do we learn to do what it says in verse three and four? How do we do what in in verse four, we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others? Well, Well, the answer is found in verses five onward. This is by far the most important observation I'm gonna share with you today because it sets the stage for our summarizing statement. Now notice carefully, Uh, So often when we look at the Bible, we don't think about what we're looking at and therefore obvious things miss us, okay? So let's take a look at this passage of scripture that I'm sure you've read a thousand times. And what I want you to notice, it's talking about the incarnation, God becoming man. It's talking about redemption. It's talking about the gospel, okay? But notice how it talks about the gospel, It says nothing at all about what the cross accomplishes. It doesn't talk about the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't talk about many of the great things that come from the death of Christ on the cross. That's not how the gospel is being used here at all. Instead, what is being emphasized in verses five onward is the attitude of Christ that got him to the cross, you see? So when it says at the end of verse two, um, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, keeps talking about this mind that you're supposed to have to be unified. Then right away it says in verse five, have this mind. You wanna know what that mind is? Okay, it's not, what this person thinks, you gotta agree with this person or you gotta agree with that person or you gotta figure out what they say and agree with them. It doesn't say it that way. It says the, the, the one mind that you have to have for unity is this mind. 
the mind that we're going to explore right now, the mind that Christ has. And this then leads to the summary statement, and this is kind of the basic thing I want to talk about today. The gospel reveals not only a message to be believed, but an example to be imitated. Okay? The gospel reveals not only a message to be believed, but an example to be imitated. What is being shown to us here in Philippians 2 is not the content, the message, and what it accomplishes. That is glorious. And we believe fully in that and build our lives around that. But what is being emphasized here in this text is the manner of the gospel. There is the message of the gospel and the manner of the gospel. And it is the manner, my friends, that we need to learn from as we think about this transition. This passage reveals the humility of Christ who put others' interests over his own, who amazingly treats us as more significant than himself. We are not more significant than Christ, but he treated us by his actions as if we were more significant than he was. And this is what we are being called to in this text. First Peter 2, in another context, speaking about suffering, but it's, it says this, for to, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Uh, so that passage in First Peter is also emphasizing the, the, the example of Christ and, and how he suffered, and is teaching us something about how to suffer leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The, the, the gospel and particularly the, the model of the gospel, the manner of the gospel, the example of the gospel needs to inform each of us as we approach this transition with Westside Community Church. The gospel provides us with a template for how humility operates practically. And so this is our North Star, my friends. This is, this is how we navigate into these unfamiliar waters. Uh, we've often spoken in this church about the relationship between gospel truth and gospel culture. We have often said that gospel truth is like the bread that you're baking in the oven. And gospel culture is the smell of the bread. And you see, humility, my friends, is a good smell. When you smell humility, when people encounter humble people, that attracts them to the gospel. On the other hand, if people behave in, in a selfish way, it smells more like rotten eggs. The scriptures tell us, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So how do we take this template of the gospel as a model to be followed and apply it to our upcoming transition? Let me now suggest three gospel applications. Of course, there's many more applications than just three, but I've, as I've thought about it, 
Uh, These are three that I think definitely apply to our transition. And in order for us to remember these, um, I've used three R's, okay? We're gonna talk about relinquishing, receiving, and respect. Relinquish, receive, and respect. So let's begin with relinquish. Relinquish our rights. This is exactly what Philippians 2 tells us. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. The the very model that is being shown to us in Philippians 2 is a model where Christ relinquishes his rights for the good of others. The, the, The right to be worshiped and to be treated like he is, as the person he is. He relinquishes all that and comes and joins himself to humanity and is rejected and spat upon and and treated foully and and opposed and, and even taken to death on a cross unjustly. Not because he enjoys pain, but because he treats us as more significant than himself because he puts our interests above his own. So therefore, relinquishing our rights is a clearly biblical application. But now what I'm going to do is I'm gonna go from a clearly biblical principle and application to, what, to something that is not taught specifically in scripture, though I believe it's a reasonable application of the point about relinquishing rights. So now I'm gonna make a very specific suggestion, okay? So you understand the authority level now drops. Relinquishing our rights, that is biblical. This application is a suggestion that I want to make as your spiritual dad, okay? Talking to you. So here's the application. We can relinquish our rights by some adjustment of our musical style during worship. West Side is predominantly seniors, whose heart language of worship is song in hymns. Now, just so you know, I love hymns. I I grew up on hymns. But many of you haven't grown up on hymns. You hardly even know what hymns are. Uh, And and let me tell you, I've had lots of conversations with Joanne's parents who are very easy people to get along with. They're not not people that are hard to get along with. And, And my dad and other seniors... And one of the things I hear commonly is we don't want to sing hymns in a modern, to modern music. If we're going to sing hymns, let us sing hymns the way we know hymns. Because you have to understand, friends, that, that music, uh, when we sing and worship God in music, it isn't just the words. If it was just the words, we wouldn't bother with the music. If it was just the words, we would just chant or we would just recite creeds of truth. But we've, we've wedded uh, theological truth to music. And we do that because the music takes our emotions and our affections and engages them in the worship. So we're not just thinking accurately about God, but we're emotionally involved in, in the, those thoughts as we sing. And it's hard for you to believe, I'm sure, that there are many people that find it hard to be emotionally engaged when they sing contemporary music. 
I find myself very engaged when I sing contemporary music, but I'm a, I'm a strange hybrid because I was raised in hymns. I get, a, I get deeply moved by singing hymns as well. But some people get just more affected emotionally by contemporary music. Others get more affected emotionally by singing hymns to the hymn cadence and tempo that they're used to. This is something that we can relatively easily relinquish. And what I'm talking about here is not a relinquishing of our, of our contemporary style. Uh, the, the kind of music that we, continue, that we sing in our church is gonna continue because that is part of who we are. I, I'm not advocating a subtraction here, I'm advocating an addition. Remember that when, when, when Jesus became a man, he didn't subtract his deity, as if that was even possible. But he didn't subtract, he just added to himself something. For the sake of unity, I believe we need to consider inserting a hymn or two into our worship each Sunday if we unite with Westside. And we need to sing those hymns with all our heart, with all our soul, and with hands raised, if that's, that's how you worship God. But we need to sing hymns the way that people are used to singing hymns. We need to sing it the, in, in the tempo and the musical style that they understand so that they can also engage with their affections as they worship God. What I'm suggesting here is that we need to relinquish our right to always sing the musical style that we prefer in order to look to others' interests in this matter. Did you know that in, the, in scripture, uh, the strong are often called to give up their rights for weaker brothers and sisters? And uh, the reason for that is because the weaker brothers and sisters can't give up their rights. It's too big a, it's too big a hurdle for them. And so uh, Paul talks about in the whole issue of, of food offered to idols and stuff, he, he appeals to the strong to even though they, they know better, to give up some of their rights for the weaker brothers. If we are unable to give up something like musical style or changing our, the, the way we do some of our music, I think it will show that we are actually the weaker ones. Listen to what Romans 15.1 says. By the way, Romans 15, the first six or seven verses are all about unity. That's the theme. This is how it begins. He says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not just please ourselves. And it goes on right after that. It says, for even Christ did not please himself. And then it talks about how Christ showed that. So we can remember this first application, the application of relinquishing with, with if you could just visually think of this, just think of you're relinquishing something. You're taking something away from yourself. You're letting, and it's, it's not on moral grounds. It's not on, it's not on truth grounds. It's on preferences. We must be willing to yield ground on preferences out of love for others. 
The next suggested application after relinquishing is the opposite. If, if, if relinquishing is this action, the next one is this action, okay? It's receiving something to ourselves. So we go from relinquishing to application number two, receive. The Net Bible renders Romans 15, 7 the following way. Receive one another then, just as Christ also received you to God's glory. This fits nicely with our alliteration. The ESV uh, uses another word. It says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The word that's translated welcome or receive there literally means to extend a welcome. It means to, to actually enfold into your, your home and your circle of acquaintances. It means to take somebody and open the, open the circle and bring them into your intimate circle. That's what that word means. This verse then is also emphasizing something about how the cross and redemption uh, is, is an example to us. Uh, it provides a model of how we're to treat one another. How did, how did Christ welcome us? It says, receive one another then just as Christ received you. Well, how did he receive you? <clears throat> well, he took the, he took the initiative. Uh, we are very different. Can you imagine a more different culture than us and, and the, the eternal culture that, that the Son of God has lived in, in eternity? We are sinfully different. But, he, but he, he reached down out to us. He took the initiative. He, took, he made all the, the sacrifices. He put the sacrifices on himself so that, that, that people that are very different from him could, could be encircled into his family. And we are, we are invited, my friends, not just into the, the outside porch. We're invited right into the living room and in the kitchen. So what, what will this look like if we end up joining with Westside? Uh, practically, it means that, w- that we talk to people we don't know, not just their friends. Okay, now I'm gonna do something that at first, first Sunday back, and you're not supposed to do this first Sunday back. You're supposed to be nice your first Sunday back. But this is your dad talking, right? I told you that right at the front end, okay? We've got two new people here today, and almost nobody talked to them at the break. I was watching. There were some, but a lot of people didn't talk to them, and that's in our own, in our own setting. My friends, you can't, it can't be this way. We got to get out of just talking to our friends. There's nothing wrong with talking to our friends, but we got to break out of that bubble, a habit bubble of just connecting with people that we're familiar with and notice, we gotta look and see who's new and go toward them. This is so important. We need to talk to people we don't need, know and we need to take the initiative. We can't wait for people to come to us. We need to go to them. Here's a big one. We need to sit next to them in our church services. Uh, we need to mingle with them. Uh, we need to, as I said, not just introduce ourselves to them, but come and inter- help them be introduced to somebody else that we know. 
And let me tell you that, that you've heard me say this before, that the whole idea of friendship and, and camaraderie, it can't just be with your own peer group. Of course, you're going to especially connect with people in your own peer group because you understand things, you have the same values, same music, you watch the same movies. I recognize that a lot of it's the same. But the reality is this, my friends, we need people of different generations to be our friends. We need, to, we need friends that are, are the age of our kids. We need, we need friends that are the age of our grandparents. This is, is so essential. And, and, if, and if we're joining with a church that has a lot of people that are over 70 years old, this is especially important. I, I encourage each of us to have the goal of meeting one new person each Sunday and learning one new name. Do you think we could do that? Learn one new person and one new name. And, and trust me, there's nobody that has a harder time with names than me. I can't even remember the names of my own family half the time. But learning people's names, introducing one person, learning their name, because when you remember someone's name, it communicates that they matter to you. And it welcomes people the way that Christ welcomes us. I mean, it tells us of, of the, the great shepherd, Christ. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He doesn't just kind of say, hey, flock out there, come and follow me. He says, John, Sally, Sue, George, let's go. So relinquish our rights receive people into our circle, okay? And finally, respect, respect. One of the ways we, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves is by treating them with respect. The word respect, it is, as it is used, I looked at the Hebrew words, Hebrew words, and Greek words for respect, it, it, it means, it's the, it's the, the, the definitions are very overlapping. It means to show deference to, it means to hold in high regard, to honor, the idea of honor is big, to give preference to. This is an amazing thing if you think about it, that, that Christ gave us preference over himself. He treated us as more significant than himself, it's, it's staggering. Listen to, to two scriptures, one from the Old Testament and one from the New, that speak into this area of respect, particularly respect to those who are older than us. Uh, this, is a, this passage in Leviticus has always intrigued me. It says, stand up in the presence of the elderly and show respect for the aged. Fear your God, I am the Lord. Interesting. Show respect by, now in that, that could, could have been a cultural thing more, showing, standing up and showing respect. I think that probably translates to our culture as well. Not necessarily, but it says, do treat elderly people when you're in their presence. Treat them in a way that they're aware that you're showing respect. In 1 Timothy, it says, never speak harshly to an older man. 
Never, 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 never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully as you would to your own father. Treat older women as you would your mother. I've been memorizing, well, I've been memorizing and forgetting and rememorizing the, the 30 sayings in Proverbs. Spent this August going over it again. There's a portion, though, in the 30 sayings where it says, do not despise your mother when she is old. It's interesting. Because as people get older and they get more forgetful and they get kind of more eccentric in the way they, they, they behave, it's easy to kind of not respect them as you did when they were younger. And let me just break away for a, for a moment from uh, the West Side thing and just talk to parents for a second. I, I just want to tell you, it's so critical, it's so important that you teach this to your children regarding their interactions with adults. The main way you are going to pass on this value of respecting uh, those who are older is by modeling respect towards those who are older in your own lives. So let me, let me suggest one simple way that we can demonstrate respect to the elderly who will be among us when we join with them if the Lord opens that door. Okay, again, the, 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 the application of respect is definitely biblical, okay? The the application that I'm going to suggest is not biblical, it's, but I think it's in line with biblical, so therefore this has less authority, okay? No authority, really, but, but I want you to consider it and think about it, okay? We can show our respect by how we dress when we are involved up front. So what I'm about to say here doesn't it only refers to people who are involved up front. It does not refer to those who are sitting in the congregation. This is a, a, just a simple way to demonstrate respect to the seniors among us. You know, if you know senior people, you know that the way you dress is connected to respectfulness to God and other people. You know? And we all understand this a little bit in our own lives. When we go to a funeral... If you see somebody that shows up at a funeral in shorts and, and a tank top, even our culture, even unbelievers in our culture say, what's going on there? You know, um, you, there, there's a way to show up to funerals where you dress up. Why do you dress up at funerals? Showing respect. Why, why do you dress up when you go to weddings? Show respect, you're, you're giving value to it. Why do you dress up when you go to graduations? You're showing value. You're saying this, this is not just your average little meeting of, of, of the high school. Why do you dress up when you meet with the president? Same reason. So we understand this concept. We practice it in various ways. But for people who are over 70, I'm going to say, uh, it applies to church. It applies to the way we gather in church. And therefore, uh, this is important because this is an important thing to nuance. Uh, that we're not saying that it's an issue of holiness, but we are saying it's an issue of holiness. So let me, let me get there in a moment. If you're on the worship team, I, I suggest 
as your dad now talking to you, uh, I'd suggest that you dress up. If you're on the worship team, that you wear collared shirts, you, you wear long pants. If you're a woman, you're, you're wearing modest dresses. If you're reading scripture, if you're praying, you're, you're dressed for the part. Don't be too sloppy or too casual because that doesn't matter to people who are 60 and under. It does matter to people who are 60 and over. This is, this is one way that we can treat those of a different generation as more significant than ourselves. And in humility, put their interests above our own. It's not an issue of holiness in the sense that the kind of clothes we wear don't make us better or worse or closer to God. That's obvious, okay? But it is an issue of holiness in the sense that curtailing our preferences for others on non-moral issues is an act of love and humility. So my friends, I hope I haven't stepped on too many toes today. I haven't called you to do anything that's counter to scripture. I haven't called you to do anything that is uh, messing with doctrine. Uh, What I've called you to do is adjust some of your preferences and give them up for the good of others. In this way, we will embody the gospel as we merge with Westside. Let's relinquish our rights for others the way Jesus did. Let's receive and welcome others the way Jesus has done for us. Let's respect and honor others the way Jesus has given us preferential treatment and actually given us a seat of honor beside himself. Listen to these verses. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them to sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. That's what Christ has done in his redemption. He's taken us from the lowest place of shame and lifted us to the highest place of honor. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He treated us significantly. He he respected us, if you want to just say it that way. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. And so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. So Father, this is what we ask um, as we've had our, in a sense, our little family meeting today. I pray that you will help us to embody the gospel, to imitate Christ's humility to uh, not only be believers in the message, but, but imitators of the manner of the gospel, to practice what we preach, uh, to live the gospel that we believe, uh, to the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.